tried to do the iMessaging on the computer and I, for whatever reason, I just could never figure it out. Well, it's probably dying when you try to open it because you have 170 <laughs> million unanswered. You're listening to Working Code with your hosts, one of whom probably just wrote a new JavaScript library, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. Okay, here we go. It is show number 74. Can you guys believe we are nearly three quarters of the way to 100 episodes? Heck yeah. And on today's show, we're going to be talking about what's on your workbench. We're just going to kind of go around the horn and talk about what we've been working on and hope that turns out interesting. (laughs) (laughs) As usual, though, we're going to start with our triumphs and fails. And Carol, you're up first. All right, guys. Last week, I had a failure because I just could not get caught up from jury duty and from being out of work six working days, dealing with all of that and just life. And I'm caught up. I am going to call that a triumph. And that is worth celebrating. I have my emails responded to. I have the meetings scheduled and I'm balancing the new promotion along with what I need to be doing really well this week. So much so I'm even writing code and I am ecstatic about that. (laughs) I celebrated it. Aren't you supposed to be managing? (laughs) I'm doing both. So I get to manage and I get to be an an individual contributor. So that was, that was the stipulation of taking the promotion was that I didn't want to give up that hat yet because I love writing code. I love doing that part of it. So I wanted to be able to still be an individual contributor and maintain that freshness in what I'm doing. Yeah. It's going to be super interesting. I think over the next couple of months to see how that balance feels. Because uh, as someone who loves to write code myself, I always wonder if I would have the the dedication to be a manager or if I'd constantly just be yearning to be, oh, let me just squeeze in some code time here. Let me squeeze in some code time there. I want to see if it's going to tear you apart. Well, I hope not. I hope it does <laughs> not tear me apart, but I'll keep you posted. <laughs> Excellent. All right. What about you, Ben? What you got? I, I'm going with the triumph, and that is that I shipped something at work today. Yay. And it wasn't a huge thing, but it was one of those things where it's been a feature request from our users for literally years. And I, I can't even remember why we didn't build it. It's it, like it took five, four days, I think, like four working days for me to build it. And, and I think it's going to actually be something people use. And I just can't understand why it was never actually added to the roadmap. So I'm just excited to have finally gotten it done. Basically, the way one of the ways that Envision works is you're creating documents and then you can give people links to those documents like you can with a Google document or you just send people a link and then they can access a version like a read-only version of it. But the problem is, is when people go in and change settings for these links, it actually, the system generates new links. So it kind of creates these immutable links and, and it's very confusing for people because they want to change the way something works, but then they have to redistribute a URL because now it applies different permissions to the document. And uh, I built them the ability to just go in and actually change the settings without changing the URL. And Yay. yeah, and it, it, it didn't even seem complicated on the onset. So I, again, just like someone in a product level said like, no, we're not going to build this. And then it got put on a backlog somewhere. And I, assuming there were competing priorities and there was a reason that this wasn't built that were valid at the time, but I don't remember what those were. So it's weird now to now reflect back and say, what? 
why was this not built? This was so easy to build. Right. So could have been based on bad assumptions, just like they would assumed it would take too long or be too complicated yeah, yeah. or something. Absolutely. Or somebody went into it and found every hole they could possibly think of that was ever going to happen. And in reality, those holes don't happen. That's what I tend to do anyways. <laughs> well, that's actually, I mean, that raises a good point. I'll, I'll say that earlier on in my career, I definitely felt very compelled to come up with solutions that worked for everybody. Right. And if someone pitched an idea, I was definitely one of the first people to jump in and be like, well, actually, that won't work for this very thin vertical of people who don't use the system that way. And if we can't do it uniformly for everyone, then it doesn't make sense. And now, as I'm getting older and I've been working on the same product for a really long time, I'm like, what? If this makes 20% of our users' lives better, then that feels pretty worth it to me. And we'll figure something else out for those 80% people that it doesn't work for and just keep iterating and iterating until... We add enough value to enough people that the product becomes compelling. I like that nice. approach. Yeah. Nice. So that's me. Adam, what do you got going on? Mine is almost exactly the same thing, except instead of like <laughs> shipping a, a feature request. So I, my triumph is I shipped a thing, but basically we've had this problem that's been annoying us for, uh, I don't know, six months or more. So we have, a, a, instead of like sending emails to say the job succeeded and and needing to recognize the fact that you didn't get an email to be aware of the fact that something failed. We have, we use a service called Dead Man Snitch. And so you're like, you have a scheduled task, right? A cron job and it runs. And the last thing it does when it's done is to just send a HTTP request to Dead Man Snitch that says, okay, I ran the job. So if it stops making those check-ins, then Dead Man Snitch will let us know. And, and we have it hooked up to our Ops Genie, we have it hooked up to our Discord, and we get emails, and it's like all of the alarms. But it's the other way around, right? Instead of having to human notice that you didn't get an email, you just have to wait for an email or another alarm to show up. And so we've had the a couple of these jobs for months now that I guess I'll say, like, they'll go into an alarm state, and then literally seconds later, they will check in as being fixed, mm-hmm. working again. And sometimes it's so fast that you get the I'm working again alarm before you get the <laughs> I'm broken alarm. <laughs> and I got one of those last night at like 1030. I had just I like just dozed off to sleep and my wife is like rubbing my shoulder and she's like, you hear your phone going off, right? And I'm like, huh? <laughs> I had no clue. And so I woke up and I looked at it. And I'm like, it's another one of those things that wakes me up just to let me know that it failed and fixed itself. In yep. you know, seconds apart, I was so annoyed at that. So this morning, I fixed that, and I, it was, I had another thing too that I fixed that was similar. But it's just like these little minor annoyances that you let ride for so long, and then yeah. the fix turns out to be so easy. It's like, why have we waited this long? Well, what yeah. was the f- the fix? I mean, was it that the the timing on the like the window that it has to receive something was just a little too small? Not a small window, but the way that the window is aligned. So the the snitch thing was set up to expect a check-in every 15 minutes, and it was looking for that to run, like, say, on the hour, right? So between zero and 15 minutes, and between 15 and one second and 30 minutes, and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And the cron job was to set up to run every 15 minutes. So if the job took more than a minute to run, then the check-in would be late at some point Mm. on one of those things and it would just it would be late by a second maybe two and so what i did i i changed the cron scheduler to just be like two two minutes later 
right? Instead of star slash 15, it was like, okay, run at two, at 17, at 32, and at 47. <laughs> the whole cron timing notation, every time yeah. I've had to deal with it, it just seems like both super powerful and incredibly esoteric. Yeah. There was there was a website. I, I got a crontab.guru. Is that what it is? No where, way. where it like tells you what it is? I got to give that a shout oh. out. Yeah, yeah. This is the one I was talking. This is what I was going to say. I had to do something with a cron job the other day. Oh, oh, it was, I think it was a Netlify scheduled function. It uses cron times to, to determine when it's supposed to execute. And I had to go to this. And it was like, I just had to look at the list of things. There was like a list of common uses that it did. And I was like, yeah, that's the one. I want it yep. every 15 minutes. <laughs> yep. Yeah. You have to do that in VentBridge and a lot of the triggers and AWS stuff. Mm-hmm. So I was like, what are we doing? I don't know. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, the syntax is, it's, I think it's like, it's relatively easy to read once it's written. You can, if you know what you're trying to figure out, it's relatively easy to, okay, this is every 15 minutes for, between these hours or whatever. But just read, like writing it from scratch is pretty difficult sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess that's it for me. Tim, who's definitely been here this whole time. Uh, how about you, man? <laughs> it's just a surprise. Yeah, you enjoyed all your triumphs. They're amazing. I got triumph too. It's a clean sweep. Uh, did I mention, have I mentioned before in the show that Postgres rocks? No. What? Have I mentioned that? What is this What is this Postgres that you speak of? I think maybe once, maybe once. Uh, it's, it's, it's a new uh, JavaScript library. <laughs> <laughs> no, just, so t- that's when you guys... T- Texted me to say that uh, we were recording because I, I obviously didn't check my messages. That's what I was doing. I was trying to import. So we're importing the um, do not call registry. So here in the United States, we have a, you supposedly you can put your list on the government list and telemarketers won't call you. It doesn't seem to stop them, however. But yeah, and we'll get into what's on my workbench. I'm, I'm doing something along those lines, but I was just, tr- I was using a tool to import. And it was going to take 54 hours. I think it was like 24 million records in this CSV file that yeah. the government gives you. They give you no automated way to download it. And so I, I, I found a command line called copy. So I could just connect to my Amazon RDS copy. I went to go watch a little bit of American Idol with my wife and it, it was done within like three songs. So nice. <laughs> so now it's building the indexes on it, which will probably take just as long. So, but yeah, that, that's just, I, I know most uh, databases have a tool like that, but it was just pretty cool to, to see how much, much more quickly that can be done than the brute force way. Yeah, that'll actually kind of tie in nicely to what's on my workbench too. So, well, the other day you were talking about how much you love jar files. Is, was this related to that or, or unrelated? No, no, no. Just one hundred percent. Just taking a, a CSV file from the government and putting it in, putting it into a database so that we can look up, make sure that uh, our customers aren't sending messages to people that are on the call list. Yeah. And I was also trying to see in, in SQL Server, you have like a no lock hinting. Uh, I thought, you know, I was trying to see yeah. if the database was getting updated because I was impatient. And, uh, but they don't, you know, they have no lock hinting. A select statement by default does not lock ever. Well, what would you even have to put lock hinting around? Well, Microsoft SQL Server, sometimes if you do a select, unless you specify with no lock, it will try to, lock that record that you're selecting. And if you're selecting a bunch of them while the system's trying to do a bunch of updates, it can cause deadlocks. Deadlocks is like the biggest problem I've ever faced in, in Microsoft SQL Server, and I never run into those. Was it into a new table or? Yeah, a brand new database, yeah. Gotcha. Okay, all right. But I, I just didn't I didn't realize that, that there is no even lock hinting for, for select statements. Mm. 
Uh, there might be, but by default, it's a no lock. So <laughs> anyway, Postgres rocks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I guess that leads us into uh, what's on your workbench. So you're talking about importing CSV files. And that's a, a big chunk of the work that our database does on any given day, just in terms of like volume of data written. We get a full set of database files from every customer every day, or, or for I'll say for most of them, both production and QA. And we import, the, and it's basically a, a clean sheet of their entire list of constituents, a bunch of details about them, and a bunch of related tables about all of them. And we have to import that. And that's such a big job to do. It can be so taxing on the database and on the application server that I, what I've been working on for the last little while here is a tool that instead of running that sort of in the main thread in the application server, we're putting that in a queue and working on it off of the main server even. it's We're running an Amazon ECS instance, a Docker container, and it pulls jobs out of a queue, and then it works on those jobs. And, and we actually have like, oh gosh, what is it? I think we have four production queues and two QA queues, because we're partitioning based on the database partition that you're in, and then also whether the job that you're trying to run is fast or slow. So you might be on like database one fast or database two slow queue, depending on what you're trying to do. So it's a very complex thing. But at the end of the day, what it's trying to do is efficiently import CSV files into the database. And another really neat thing is we finally figured out how to do, so that we're using MySQL and it has a load data from file or load data in file. Well, I guess in Amazon's fork of MySQL, I guess it's probably technically they call it Aurora, I think, but they have load data from S3. So we don't even have to download the file in you order the, to... You drop the file in S3? Yeah. And, yeah. and our customers are already putting it on S3. They put yeah. it on S3 and then they call us to let us know that it's there. Yeah. We have like a shared bucket. And so we do actually download the file because we do some validations on it first, but we download the file and then we just tell RDS, okay, go ahead. Once we're sure it's valid, we say, go ahead and import this file. And it oh. is super fast, impressively fast. So side note, they call you every morning to tell you they've uploaded a file? <laughs> Not on the telephone, an API request. I just, I wanted to make sure I understood the communication yeah. here. Yeah, okay, I, okay. I was a little concerned too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, hey, it's a valid question. It, it's just been such an interesting thing to work on. Remember, I think I had a fail recently that like, I was working on a project that was super interesting in terms of like the technology that I was working on, but I just was not feeling motivated. It's this project. Yeah, yeah. Like it's oh. so many interesting, like this is my first thing working with uh, queues and I'm working with lambdas to do like the dead letter queue. I've got an ECS, the whole ECS like stack, right? You have task definitions and services and containers and stuff. And it, it's, I think the only brand new thing for me in all of this is the queuing. But still, it's been super interesting. And we are, so as of yesterday, I think like yesterday midday, this is now um, deployed, quote unquote, to QA for one customer. Thank you, Feature Flags. And and they're, they were really impressed to see it running in QA. It's working really well. And so now like, I guess all that's left to do is the last 90%. Right. The, the first 90% takes half the effort. The, the last 10% uh. takes the other half the effort, which it, it shouldn't be too bad. Right. I've got a bunch of SQL scripts that I needed to move from one repository to another. And there are some. So the this whole tool is like basically we want to run this job that imports the, these files. And some of the steps of the import 
are complex enough that you can't just do it with SQL. You need some app server functionality. And so the tool is, has a list of script files and they could be either SQL files, which it'll like read the file and run the SQL, or it can be the previous app server was called Fusion. So it's a CFM file and it would just execute that file and whatever it was in there would get executed. And now I'm converting that to be JavaScript. So it runs on Node in our ECS container. Oh, so that's probably going to be faster to you than what you were running on ColdFusion. It has been surprisingly good. I guess another yeah. really interesting thing is here. So we've been using CloudWatch logs for uh, a long time. And yep. we discovered, I, I think they've been continually improving CloudWatch logs, especially log insights. And we discovered that if you emit logs as JSON, so instead of saying like the job is done, this was the job name and it took this long. If you just emit an object, that contains like consistent key names. So you can say customer is XYZ and environment is production and job name is warehouse and duration is this. You can actually like query that in CloudWatch Log Insights. It like Mm kind of does a map reduce on the whole, on all of your, and you choose which log streams you want to query and it finds all those log statements for you, which is super, super cool because previously... That was my biggest frustration with CloudWatch logs is trying to find you the needle. You can't get through it. Yeah, trying to find the needle in the haystack. You know, you, it's awful. You're running so much. The whole point <laughs> of the thing is like you're running so much stuff in parallel, right? You've got, that's like the big selling point is you can run a ridiculous amount of computing and okay, and it all spits out a bunch of logs and you can aggregate all those logs, but then trying to find something when you're debugging or whatever can be a nightmare. And this using log insights to to query through it has been phenomenal. Yeah. When I first got into Sumo Logic, that was the very first thing I looked at. I was like, can we filter out all of these messages? And sure enough, I can take all of that and create different columns for it. So then I'm like, I can see this is on dev. I can see this is on QA. I can see what function this come from. I was like, sold. Give me Sumo Logic and get it fast. I'm like, because we can't get through any logs in any AWS environment without it. Yeah. The issue that we run into with logs is talking about consistent keys in your log structure is like one team will log user IDs as an integer and then another team will log user IDs as a string and then we go to search for it and whatever powers all the indexing under the hood just gives up. It says, well, you gave me both so I'm going to give you back neither. You can neither search for them as string or as number because I don't understand what it is. It's super frustrating. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. Yeah, we, we have sort of a challenge because not 100% of our stuff is in the cloud or AWS or actually we have some AWS, some Azure, and then some on-prem. Anything that's PCI related, credit card related, we have to be on-prem. Mm-hmm. So we're uh, taking a look at, because our logs are everywhere, and one of my developers suggested Elk Stack. Yep. E-L-K? Yeah, E-L-K. It's the same people that created Elasticsearch. Mm-hmm. And they sort of have, uh, you can sort of build your own kind of logging thing. So I don't know, we, we have a research ticket for it. We'll take a look about that. That's yeah, cool. we did. We used a service called Kibana a long time mm-hmm. ago. And I think Kibana mm-hmm. was basically like a productized version of the Elk stack. So it's like managed Elk. Elk yeah, stands for that's something. That's what Elk stands for. Elasticsearch, Logstash, and Kibana. Oh, okay. But the query languages for logs are very powerful, but also very esoteric sometimes. I, I actually kind of like what you get for CloudWatch Insights. It's in some ways very similar to SQL, but in other ways not. And it's really like when you open it up, 
it's got sort of a default query in there that has 50 to 75% of what you would use on any mm. given query. List these fields, sort by this, and filter by this sort of thing. And so you can either, it gives you a nice little reminder of what's available in terms of like operators, I guess you would call those. Yeah. Sort and filter. And the syntax is right there. So it's just like a quick modify. Well, that's nice. I like when it gives you the nice interface where you could do the drop downs. Like, I want to find this category in here. And then from that, you have the little toggle button that says, show me the sequel for it. Or I think it's called like JSQL. I don't know what it's actually. I've never read the whole sentence, right? So I just toggle it and then I can see what it used to create those filters. I'm like, oh, now I'm understanding it. Now I'm learning how to write this myself. Thank you for toggling. And then in insights, when after you run a query and it starts to like read through your data, it notices when you've got like, okay, you searched for these things and and I'll give you your results. But then over here on the side, it says 75% of the rows that returned also have these fields in common. Do you want to filter on any of those? I love it. Pretty nice. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to your message queues for a second because what actually goes into the message item on the queue? Because you're... Yeah, yeah. You're asking the database to import an entire file from S3, so I assume it's not the file itself in the queue because it's probably too big for queues anyway. So what does the message have? So uh, if I'm not mistaken, by default, an Amazon SQS queue, the message is like limited to like 256 characters. I think it's it's small. I don't think it's kilobytes. I think it's like bytes. But anyway, it's, it's not that much. Anyway, so what we're sending is we're sending a JSON packet that contains a few things, right? So a GUID that just uniquely identifies the request so that if we get duplicates, they're easy to ignore. Actually, so I did that specifically because I talked to a couple of people that have done a bunch with SQS. Thank you, Twitter. I was tweeting about this stuff and people were like, you should do this and you should do that. And I'm like, actually, would you mind having a conversation with me? Like, let's go over here in DMs where we can have more than 280 characters and chat about stuff. And I got a lot of really great advice, one of which was like, even though Amazon says it's a, the if you use a FIFO queue, they quote unquote guaranteed a, exactly once delivery. But he was like, that's kind of hogwash. Like they, they try, but they don't Magic. guarantee. Yeah, they try. They give it the old college try to, to do exactly once delivery, but you might get it twice. You might get it never. You never know. And so, yeah, so it contains the job ID. It contains the, the, like the name of the job that they were trying to do. I get, hang on, maybe it would take, make more sense if I took you back a step and, and the job, the feature that we're replacing that did it inline on the app server, right? So it's, it, they would make an API request and they would say, okay, we want to run the warehouse job. The file name is warehouse.csv. When you're done, email these people and let them know. And we have the feature, but I don't think anybody actually uses it where we can send you a webhook when it's done. So that like programmatically and you don't have to check your email like some bag of meat. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's it. So so do all of those phases now become different messages on different queues? Like here's the message for processing the file and like here's the message for sending the email. No. So the, the queue is just a request to do an import. That's what we're what we are putting in the queue. Each item mm-hmm. in the queue represents one request to do an import. And if you can imagine it just at first with a single queue, so all requests for all customers across all environments would just go into this one queue, be roughly first in, first out. So a not a, a quote unquote standard queue. Again, we're talking about AWS SQS. A standard queue is roughly FIFO, first in, first out. 
Whereas the FIFO queue is like guaranteed first in, first out. So as long as you're not dealing with like millions of messages, you're probably going to be FIFO or close enough to it that you don't care. And so the first, there's a thing looking for messages that finds the first message and it does the work, right? So its job then is import the file, delete the message and, and send whatever notifications are necessary. And do you have a single worker? Like is, is only one consumer pulling messages off the queue? So in our imaginary single queue scenario, yes. Gotcha. So, okay, so that's the basic gist of it. Then they make an API request to let us know that they've uh, sent us a file on S3. And we take that API request, the details of it, and basically push it into our SQS queue. We, we massage it a little bit, like we add our GUID to indicate this was the request ID. And, and then the API returns like, okay, your request has been queued instead of, the file is now importing. Your request has been queued, wait for your email sort of thing. So then my initial plan was from what I had was able to figure out on my own from reading was I would add the item to SQS and then I would also manually trigger an SNS message, simple notification service. And that SNS would trigger a Lambda and that Lambda would go, okay, I need to start up the processor. So the Lambda would then do a quote-unquote deploy, I mean, it's just changing some settings on the ECS service. So Elastic Container Service is like a you know Docker container orchestration thing. It can auto-scale, that sort of thing. You can set it to zero desired workers and it'll just shut everything down. And then you can programmatically say, okay, I want three right now. And it'll spin three up and, and they'll start doing whatever their job is. So the plan was, the, we would queue the message in SQS, fire off an SNS message, which would start a Lambda, which would do a quote-unquote deploy of ECS to tell it, okay, go from zero to one workers because we're, there's work to do now. So basically, you can kind of think of our ECS approach as Lambdas that can run for more than 15 minutes, right? Like, I just want to mm-hmm. start a worker, do some work, and then shut down. And that was our my plan going into it of the way to do that. I started explaining that to one of my coworkers and he's been poking around in EventBridge a lot lately. And he's like, I'm pretty sure you can do that with just like regular CloudWatch alarms now. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, we looked at it and you can. It, it's, I'm not even going to try to describe it here, but I can tell you, if you need to know this, hit me up on Twitter. I'll, I'll give you some details. Maybe I'll have to write a blog post or something. But <laughs> basically you can create a CloudWatch alarm and that alarm can automatically scale up and scale down your ECS service yeah. as necessary. instead of the SNS? Correct. Instead of SNS. Gotcha. So okay. now that that was my plan, right? So plan was API does an SQS and an SNS. The SNS triggers a Lambda. Lambda triggers ECS to scale up. When the ECS task would scale up, what it does is it just checks the SQS queue. And if there's work to do, it grabs that first item off the list and does the work. When it's done, it checks, is there any more work to do? If not, it shuts down. So it'll keep pulling things off the queue until there's nothing left. Until the queue is empty. Gotcha. Yeah. How, how does it shut down? So unfortunately, the way that we're doing it right now is we have two alarms for each queue. The queue, you can monitor the number of visible messages in the queue. And so when it goes above zero, I trigger a deploy to scale up. And then when it okay. goes down to zero, and when, when it's been zero for long enough that I'm confident, extremely sir. confident yeah. that there's nothing still processing in the background, then I tell it to shut down. Gotcha. So the, the worker is not like self-terminating because it has nothing left to do. It's more like it sits idle for too long and something else terminates. Right. It, it gotcha, does gotcha, actually gotcha. quit the process, which triggers another container to spin up, but it takes seconds for that container to come up. And then it waits 10 seconds to get a message from SQS. And since nothing comes down, then it, it just 
like logs a thing that says nothing in the queue and it shuts itself down and it repeats over and over until it's told to scale down to nothing. So, okay, so that was uh, all hypothetical single queue, right? Now, you can just imagine like we have two databases and we have QA in production. And then we also have some jobs that we know are going to be fast, right? Some jobs take a minute or two or max like five. And some jobs take somewhere between 20 and 40 minutes to run. And you oh, don't want to mix the two. Yeah. yeah. You don't really want to mix the two because you really want those fast ones to just get out of the way. And so we have a fast queue and a slow queue for each of the databases for each environment. Except QA, we only have one one QA databases that all customers share. And so we have, it's one QA database server. So it's sharing physical resources, but separate databases. And so we have DB1 production fast, DB1 production slow, DB2 production fast, DB2 production slow, QA fast and QA slow. And so for each of those queues, there needs to be two alarms. One to monitor when the message goes from zero up to anything above zero and, and spin up. And then another alarm that watches for it to have been zero long enough to shut down. Yeah. And then I have separate monitors that just ch- exist for the purpose of letting us know that stuff has been in the queue for so long <laughs> that something is wrong. That's so That's interesting. interesting. The, the queue stuff, where I get, I constantly get tripped up, and, and I alluded to this earlier when I was asking about the, the emails that you have to send back to say, hey, we've done the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, something can crash at any time for any reason, like cosmic bit flipping due to sunspots, yep. right? Like, <laughs> so it's like it's at some point, it's theoretically possible that you have pulled down the file, you've processed it, and then just before you're going to send the email to say, hey, we're done, the server crashes. Or like Amazon could just take your EC instance away and be like, nope, sorry, you don't have this anymore. And what, how do you deal with that? Like, how do you, what happens then? Yeah, does yeah. that email just never go out or does the whole job get reprocessed in like item, item potent sort of way? I, I think in the exact scenario that you described, we would be mostly fine, except that, like you said, that email notification wouldn't go out. But one of the early steps in that handling when it starts to, to process the item from the queue is it checks to see if that GUID that's in the queue message has already mm-hmm. been written to a table as like, I've processed this request. Ah. And so, I, and I, I forget whether, right, I forget whether writing that record comes before or after sending the success or failure notification, but it's the last couple of things that happen. And so it's possible, I guess, maybe depending on the order of those things, that the either the record got written before the email was sent and then the job died or the email was sent and the job died before we could write that record. And in that case, like in the first case, then there would be no email notification, but we would have record of it internally. And we already have like a page that shows us the last time that the files were imported. So if they ask, we can just be like, yeah, it was successful. And the, I guess the other case is it would just get imported again, right? If they never got their email I don't know. I mean, I guess they got their success email, so they wouldn't feel the need to re-trigger it. But if for some reason they did and we didn't have record of it, then we would just re-import it. And it's not that big of a deal. The, the import itself is idempotent. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. it's not right, that big of a deal. Right, you're basically resetting the database, more or less, right. it sounds like. Yeah, yeah I mean, it basically, Again. it's import all this data into some table underscore new. And the very yeah. last step of the import is drop table XYZ, rename table XYZ underscore new to XYZ. Sneak attack. Yeah. Yo, this stuff is so fascinating to me. I, I just had to build something to work where I had to make three separate API calls 
And I kept having to pull one of the guys from the other teams in and I'm walking through my code and I'm like, it could die here. It could die here. Yeah. It could die here. And I have to rerun it again. And I'm like, what happens when I make the first API call and then it dies? And then I have to make that other API call again. Like, do I get a 500 error? Do I get a 409 conflict? Does it just give me a 200 that it already exists? Like, uh, and then it's like, it's stepping through that, all these failure cases, trying to figure out how to, to understand how to replay parts of workflows. It's, it's very, yeah. it's, I don't know, it's very exciting to put code like that together, it like forces huh. you to think through all the sad paths. You are a masochist. <laughs> <laughs> He's worried about cosmic bit flips. I mean, yeah. sake. Solar flares. <laughs> so uh, it's funny, the way you described that reminded me of the way that my kids talk about what I do, right? They're like, oh, you just sit at a computer all day and just like mash on a keyboard. And I'm like, it's a little more complicated than that. Is it though? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> There's one line from one of the, I think it must be the first Ocean's Eleven movie. And I don't know why this just tickles me, but I it will forever be with me. George Clooney and Brad Pitt are talking about how they actually have to break into the safe. And they're like, yeah, we have to get through all the security guards. And then we have to get through this elevator that has motion sensors and special keys. And then we have to get down to a special vault that has pressure detectors on the floor. And of course, we only have 30 seconds until the SWAT teams are alerted. And uh, Matt Damon's like, oh, so it's a smash and grab kind of job. (laughs) (laughs) And George Clooney's like, it's a little more complicated than that. Hey, my index finished. Yay! Yeah, nice. so it's over two gigs of the text file itself is two gigs. Is the only thing it is? It's area code, comma, phone number, and twenty-four million records of that. The, the index. Guess how big the index is? Big. Seven point three gigs. Ooh. Nice, 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 nice. But yeah, I, I, I did a I did a select on my phone number, and it two minutes. It was still running. So now it comes back within. Let's see. Wait, it was two minutes and before you added the index? Yeah, two minutes before. Yeah, and, and now it's like zero milliseconds. <laughs> yeah. So, nice. Yeah. That is one of the things I've never wrapped my head around very well is database indexing. I don't do a good job at that. I didn't, like, I've never really had to do it. And now I have DBAs that handle it for me. So I still don't have to know it. But I know that if it's wrong, it can go bad really quick. <laughs> you won't find anything. Everything will crash on you. And if it's great, then nobody notices because they're just happy they get their data back. So, Yeah. I have a question about Postgres. So we're talking about message queues, and I'm always impressed with what Postgres actually has baked into it out of the box. And as much as I love the idea of spinning up an Amazon message queue or like a Rabbit MQ, in most scenarios, I already have a database working in my application. Does Postgres come with like a poor man's message queue, like special APIs to just use this data table as a message queue? Not that I'm aware of. I'm sure I'll be corrected if I'm wrong, but yeah. It feels like something they should just throw in there. It seems like an odd use case for a database to me. Yeah, 100%. But sometimes it's nice to just not have one more technology to spin up. Use what you know. Especially if you're in a situation like Adam's, and I'm not trying, this is not throwing shade on anything Adam's doing, but I'm thinking more about myself where it's like, I get so afraid <laughs> of spinning up new technologies because it's like mm-hmm. just one more thing that can fail. Especially in a situation like what you're talking about, where you mostly have one worker. And it's not like, it's not like the problem you need to solve is queue contention, where I have a bunch of different consumers trying to pull from the queue. If I just have one consumer, 
it's like if I just had a simple data table that could sort of act like a queue, like maybe we just cut out one more thing. And again, I'm not trying to say Adam should do this. I'm saying more like if I wanted to build a poor man's queue, it'd be cool if the database just made that a little bit easier. I don't know, I've got just a simple Google search. What I'm finding is that it does have a listen notify event, and but you still would have to use something like RabbitMQ and, and a plugin for the listener exchange. Oh, gotcha. So, gotcha, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. RabbitMQ would talk to your database and look, listen for the notify event, and then it would aggregate the messages and create the queues. And We do run into a situation at work where like once every nine months, RabbitMQ will just stop responding for no particular reason. Like if you look at RabbitMQ, it looks healthy. And if you look at the application servers, they look healthy. And messages are going into RabbitMQ, but nothing can read from it. And they just restart RabbitMQ and it starts working all of a sudden. We can, yeah, we just can't figure out what the heck is happening. Do you guys automate a restart on it then? Or do you just wait for it to die? No, the the platform, the SREs, the site reliability engineers have to go in and and cycle the pods (laughs) down one at a time. It's a huge pain, but we don't know what else to do. Oh, like how many servers do you think are out there? Like maybe in percentage uh, of just average servers in the cloud do you think people have configured to just like restart every saturday morning because a lot. if i don't then stuff gets uh, th- just just for the reason that if i don't then eventually after two weeks or after 50 days or whatever stuff just gets starts to get ugly and stuff starts to go wrong yep well it's really funny because our teams we deploy pretty regularly at work and then around new year's We usually have a deployment freeze just because we have limited staff and like a lot of people taking vacations around New Year. And you'll see, so it'll be like no one can deploy between the day before Christmas and like the two days after New Year or something just because it reduces the chances that something will explode. But because of that, there's no automatic cycling of the pods or the deployments were not cycling pods. And like two, three days into that, you'll see stuff just suddenly start to break that <laughs> never broke before. Like suddenly people are running out of memory and CPUs are spiking. You're like, oh yeah, there's just serious problems that were coincidentally yes. taken care of by the fact yep. that we're deploying once a day. Yeah, those memory leaks and whatever that yeah. just don't have time to build up. Nope. Yeah, clear yeah. it. Yep. The bunny died. So, I mean, I'll go on the, my workbench. So this week... It's early in the week and most of the end of last week and working on, so we have tools that basically look for events in insurance companies, life cycle, your policy is going to cancel. You got a, a payment due or you're having automated payment that just declined or an automated payment that, that cleared sending out emails and SMS messages. And, and mo- most of that stuff was done. The part that I've been really been working on is a tracking the delivery, right? having it so that we can say with this degree of confidence that the SMS message was delivered or the email didn't bounce. So working a lot with callbacks, building channels for callbacks to, to call a page to say this email was opened, this, this SMS message was blocked because it's an invalid number or it was blocked because they opted out. And then also doing research on the do not call list on getting that. Of course, the government, you sign up for an account. If you are a, a telemarketer, they charge you $19,000 a year for the entire list of like the entire country. But if you're not doing, if all you're doing is just like telling a person, Hey, you have a business relationship with them already. And it's like, this is about to happen on this, this service that, that you signed up for supposedly you're exempt, but the company I'm working with, they're, 
they're afraid of litigation. So they like wanted me to make sure that we got this put in place. So sign up for it and they go, all right, it could be two to three weeks <laughs> before we approve your, <laughs> I just got the email today that I got approved. So I went in there and downloaded it. That's what I was working on when, when you guys called, but yeah, it's just, it's just fun. I like playing with the data. I like working with the callbacks and just seeing you send something out and then another service like SendGrid or VoIP or Twilio basically send you data back so you can track all that, you know, have a tying in a GUID that ties in so that you can track everything and report on it. So that's what I've been working on. Been pretty fun. Pretty cool. Not as cool as message queues and all that stuff, but. <laughs> I was like, yeah, why didn't you put it in a queue, Tim? Come right, on. I know. Do you get like monthly updates to that list? How does that work? They update it daily. Oh, wow. So I think, I have to double check on this, but I, I think if a person has signed up and they've been on the do not call list for more than 18 days and you and you call them with the telemarketing, then that's a violation. But honestly, I've never found how you do anything to these people, right? I get calls all the time all and I'm day. on the list. I look myself yeah. up. I've been on the list. For a long time. And I don't know how you like, because supposedly you can sue them and, and get thousands of dollars uh, for them having called you. But I don't know how to do that. I don't think anybody does. I think it it must have something to do with how easy it is to spoof a phone number because it's like, how are they, how are you, somebody that wants to sue them, going to know who to sue? Right. Yeah. Right. right. You get a phone call. You have no idea where it really came from. You just know they want you to give them money ostensibly to renew your car, your vehicle's extended warranty. Yeah, right. mm-hmm. and this is this is my last notification. Oh yeah. yeah. Except the one that we're going to call you tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I feel like nineteen thousand dollars is a, is a pretty cheap source of phone numbers that they could be calling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, and half the calls that I get on my iPhone now say spam rate right. yeah. in the actual <laughs> yeah, phone too. ID. Yeah. I don't. I wonder where Apple's getting that information. Probably the carriers like tr- tracking the number of calls they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's probably carrier, not necessarily your not Apple. Apple. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So back to your updates, real quick. So are you going to write something that pulls the data daily for an update, or what are you planning on doing yeah, with that? That I haven't figured out yet, because I, I, because like I said, I can't. I haven't found a way to automate it. Like you have to log in, and every time you log in, they call you with an automate. Your number is seven six five four three two, and then you type that in your login. So there's, I don't know how it op. It's just I think it's just gonna once a week have a, a person go download it and. FTP it to a site and we'll or upload it to a S3 bucket and we'll parse it. You have voice automated phone systems already, right? So you should just give it a number, have it call it, have it record the number for you and do it for you. Still don't know how to log in and then download. So yeah, we'll see. That's definitely the future that we're heading towards, right? People are going to yeah. start selling services that exist to intercept other like robotic phone calls or whatever services and do work for you that currently yeah. is supposed to be done by a human. Yeah, I'll, I'll have it intercept the spam call and then automatically send the the notice of the lawsuit. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'll just, you know, as many calls as I get, I'll never have to work again. Nice. I want like, maybe I'll like record a voicemail that's like, if you're calling about my car's extended warranty, press one. <laughs> <laughs> just like try to keep them on the line as long as possible without actually having to be there. Yeah. I mean, with the exception of my parents, most people are normal human beings. They text you first. <laughs> like, hey, I'm going to call you. <laughs> like, okay. 
I don't really do that, but I, if I don't recognize a number and I'm not expecting some sort of like important phone call from a number that I won't recognize, like a doctor's office or something, then I just won't answer. Yeah, I let it go to voicemail. Absolutely. That's that's become a little bit problematic because now our work, like we have a, a Twilio provided work phone line, mm. like a company line, and my extension on there just goes to my cell phone. So occasionally I'll get voicemails from one of my customers and it's like, I'm trying to reach you about such and such problem. I'm like, well, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Don't answer my phone. So yeah, my topic is actually related to my triumph being that I shipped something and the thing that happens after I ship is I go into a sort of postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel <laughs> like I feel like postpartum is actually kind of accurate because you're sort of birthing something into the world, except like I didn't grow it in my tummy like women do. I grew it in my <laughs> brain and I gave it out into the world. And then after it's gone, I feel like a little sad and like a little empty. And I had this manager this guy, Rich Armstrong, he was my engineering manager a couple of years ago. And he had this thing that he called ROPE, R-O-P-E, which stood for Responsible, Organized, Productive, and Effective. And the idea is that you sort of gradually become more engaged and, and more effective in a task until you finish it. And then you kind of in my case, I go into my little depressive cycle and then I have to start back at R. So I've shipped and now I got to go back to R, which is reliable. Like I just have to show up. Like I just have to reliably show up to work. And like, that's the bar that I'm setting for myself. I don't have to worry about anything else. Then once I've done that, I can move on to O, organized. I can start to get organized about what I want to work on next. I can think about my backlog. I can think about the maybe epics I want to create and just start to gather my thoughts and start to point myself in a particular direction. And then I can move on to P, P, productive. And that's like where I'm probably fleshing out tickets and I'm actually maybe starting to think about how I want to put this work together and maybe I'm starting to write some code. And then finally, I'm starting to build up all this momentum and this mental energy and I can move on to E, effective. And like now I'm just starting to crank out code and I'm moving tickets across my Kanban board until eventually... I finish all my work the end of the and rope. I ship it <laughs> and then I get my postpartums again and I just start back at the end of my, beginning of my rope. That sounds like a really depressing cycle, man. It's the circle of life. <laughs> it, it is sad. I mean, like it's, I ship. You need a hobby. And then I make these like demo videos for internal stuff at work and I'm super excited. Emojis everywhere and rocket ships and like Party Parrot. I don't know if Party Parrot is like a generally known thing or if that's just something. Yes, it is. I use it all the time. Um, Party Parrot. Party Parrot like all (laughs) over the place, right? And that lasts for like two, three hours. And then all of a sudden I'm just like, oh, I'm sad. (laughs) On to the next thing. Are are you Logie? Yeah, I get Logie and then I got to figure out where where to go next and so that's where i'm at i'm currently sort of combing through the backlog and looking to see where there might be some missed opportunity and trying to figure a balance of level of effort versus return on investment do i want to put in a lot of effort and try and build something bigger or do i want to try to get some smaller things done or maybe just do like a week or two of just small bug fixes and not really feature development i just got to get i just got to Point myself in a direction and I'll get there and I know I'll feel great once I start, but there's this, this sad intermediary period where I'm sort of aimlessly searching for something. See, that's what I love about how we have started working. We've started working in um, a cycle model 
So when I'm wrapping up and getting ready to release what I have currently in work, or let's say it gets to UIT, so it gets over to customer testing. I already know what's coming down in the next cycle, so I can go ahead and start that process. I can Mm -hmm. go ahead and start building out an MVP. I can start building some stories. I can start figuring out questions to ask. So while it's in UAT and I'm still getting to kind of see it through the finish line, I'm starting something ahead of that. So I don't have that big lull in between. Because when I have the lull, it's when I'm like, what am I going to do? I don't know what to do right now. Like I need something to occupy my time. I I can do that to a limited degree. But I I have trouble if if I have something and it's sort of waiting to go out, I feel very mentally blocked and I feel like I can't really think effectively about a whole new topic until the thing that's sitting there is actually done and shipped. Yeah. One of my friends was talking to Steve about how I text. Whenever I text people, I'm like, one sentence, send. One sentence, send. I don't do (laughs) paragraph texting. And she's like, just let it go. She's an engineer. They don't think like us. Like She thinks immediately. And then there's another thought. She can't think through multiple things at once. It's one thing at a time. She gets very clearly through that. And then she thinks the next thing. You can't ask her to make a paragraph. Okay, that's just mean. <laughs> I'm, I'm the same way if I'm texting on my phone, but at least half the time, probably closer to 75% of the time, I'm sitting at my laptop and I'm typing out my text messages on the laptop. Uh, oh, and like iMessage or something? I mean, it's Android, so it's a little different. But yeah, oh, there's a oh, oh. you know browser-based... You can connect your phone and just type oh, your message, cool. like do the all the text messaging stuff through there. Google Messages. I've tried to do the iMessaging on the computer, and I for whatever reason I just could never figure it out. Well, it's probably dying when you try to open it because you have 170 <laughs> million unanswered. Ben's like uh. kill. Don't like ding. Don't like ding. <laughs> Well, I guess I could chat about mine super quick. I don't, I don't think it's going to take too long. Okay. So we have been working on this project and there's been a lot of requirements to it. And there's been a lot of change. Like once we've started meeting with the customers and the product team and we've been interviewing the people who are going to be using the system, the requirements have went from here's this big giant overview of like what we want done and what we want to accomplish down to probably we're at five bullet points for what is in the MVP now, which is really great because every time I go back to product, I'm like, oh, well, should we do text notification? They're like, kill it. We don't want it. Make it a later (laughs) phase. I'm like, oh, what about the daily digest? That's going to be a later phase too. Kill it. We literally want for the first time with this whole effort and everything we're doing, we really be, we really want a true minimum, minimal viable product to put out. We want the least amount we can put in and build from there. We just want to see how they're going to use it and see what tweaks we need to make in order for them to actually be productive in this. And I have been so happy that our product team has has just supported us on every turn. Like, yes, nope, kill it. We're not going to do it. That's a phase two. This is a phase three. We're going to keep building on it. So when the customer's like, oh, but it really should do that, our product team is like, no, you don't get it. No (laughs) checkboxes for you. (laughs) You can't mark that as anything. (laughs) That's awesome. So it's been great great. to just have the buy-in of everybody to see that. Let us go small. That's one thing I will say I love about Cold Fusion is I can get a product out so freaking fast. Like we can get something out the door and it's just like in the system like so quick. So we have it out there running and then we can build on it and then we can see how we want to use it. 
So it's just, it's great to have the buy-in from the company when you're actually making an MVP and they can scale it back with you and feel supported. So that's what I'm working on and it is great. Are they expecting that MVP in one eight-week cycle? Yeah. Yep. We're already three weeks into it and we just now, or four weeks in, we just finally got the bullet points down to where I could put stories in. So the stories still have a few questions on there, like we have a design team who are sending us some UI stuff for how they want it laid out based off of their interviews with the customers. But yeah, it's we'll get it out the door. It's not going to be an issue because we're doing so small. It's literally just an internal chat system. <laughs> like that's It's just storing messages and displaying them, but they want it super complex. And we've, we've scaled it back to just store the messages, just see them. Right. Where previously they were having to send out emails and everything was then being handled inside emails. So it's getting them in our system. So it's just starting. It's a starting point. So This I'm, isn't the system that you were talking about, like using Pusher for, is it? It is. This is okay. going to be it. But Pusher won't be till down the road. And then that's going to be like another phase into it. So Right. Yeah. It's just it's good cool. to have buy-in. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about. Cold Fusion allowing you to move quickly. I so fast. Um, one thing I'll say when I, I was talking about when I deploy stuff and then it's like emojis and party parrots everywhere in our Slack. Slack allows you to have a bunch of custom emojis as well. Mm-hmm. And somebody uploaded Lucy and CF emojis. So like everything I deploy, I definitely heavily <laughs> emoji with Cold Fusion related paraphernalia. Because like I don't want to be a Cold Fusion fanboy, but I do feel very proud of the fact that especially as the only person left on the legacy team, like I still effing ship. And yeah, I and it, like in it. part I can do it because Cold Fusion just makes a lot of stuff really easy. Like I, I like to celebrate that. Yeah. So you know that your Slack administrator gets a an like a monthly report of a million different things, but one of them is like your your most and least used emojis. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Oh, I totally want to see that. And like the people that use them the most and that sort of thing. Nice. And I'd be curious to see where your Lucy and CF emojis land on that. One of our QA staff left in the past couple of weeks and his name was Jeff. He was absolutely the best and he's missed already. But the other QA team created a little emoji for him. It says blame Jeff and it's his head. (laughs) So anytime something breaks, you see it pop up and it just says blame Jeff. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, that is great. That's one thing. So we switched from Slack to Discord for a variety of reasons. But one thing that I miss is that we can't have animated emojis for free anymore. You can have them, but you have to pay for Mm -hmm. like Nitro. And it's a monthly subscription sort of deal. And yeah. Did you switch after they added threading? No, it was before. So, I mean, we have threading now, but. Yeah. How do you follow a chain if there's no threads? There's replies. I mean, it's just like our podcast Discord. It's very hard to follow that Discord. Not gonna it, lie, it can be if there's a lot of if there's a bunch of different topics going on at once. Yeah, yeah. but I, yeah, I like the threads. It's funny. Like now I'll go back and I'll be working in Slack for various things, and it's like, wait, where's the? How do I do the reply thing that I'm used to doing in Discord? You can't do yeah. that. It's just threading and and tagging. I guess you would call it like tag the yeah. person. You know, if I could do a, a tiny bit of cross show promotion. Sure. Um, Do it. We'll cut it out, uh, but go ahead. uh, (laughs) (laughs) So Basecamp has their podcast. I think it's called Rework. And I know that the Basecamp people are very polarizing and they've had... Yeah, I mean, we can throw them some love. Probably nobody's heard of this podcast or this company. Yeah, yeah. They they could use the working code bump. (laughs) So this season of Rework, DHH and uh, Jason Fried are 
like per episode going through a chapter of their most recent book. I think it's the rework book or maybe it's the it doesn't have to be crazy workbook. I can't remember which title it is, but they talk so much about exactly what Carol's talking about right now. They talk about MVPs and how they create cycles for work and how they defer things like almost as much as possible to see maybe they never even have to do it. And yeah. um, they work in six week cycles, but it's just, it's, I've been finding this season of rework to be riveting. I mean, I read the book, so none of it's like really a surprise, but it's so great to hear them actually talk about it instead of me just reading the words that they wrote. So anyway, that's just, if people like thinking about product development life cycles, this season of rework's just been really good. Okay. Have to listen. Well, I hope they appreciate the bump. <laughs> I guess that about wraps it up. So this episode of Working Code is brought to you by Postgres. It's this new database that you probably haven't heard of. <laughs> and listeners like you, if you're enjoying the show, you should consider supporting us on Patreon. It's the best way to keep this show running. Patreon donations cover the costs of editing and recording, and we couldn't do this every week without those things. So we appreciate all the support that we can get. Special thanks go out to our top patron, Monty. If you'd like to help us out, you can go to patreon.com slash workingcodepod. All patrons get early access to new episodes and the after show. And today on the after show, tonight, this week on the after show, we're, let's see, Ben's dad let him stick his finger in something hot. Carol is building a Spotify screen and something, somebody's dog buried something for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's see. You know what? I'm going to ask you for a review this week. We got a new review and I just want to send out some appreciation to Hattrick22. He says, uh, part of a bigger team. I work on a small team and sometimes I feel isolated and out of touch with what's happening outside of our company. I appreciate that the Working Code team gives me a glimpse that the at the success and failures that we deal with week to week are universal. Good luck. Well, good luck to you too, Hattrick22. Yeah, and thanks good luck, for Thank you so much. So that's it for us this week. We'll catch you next week. And until then, remember, your heart matters, even if you just birth some code and feel like you're at the end of your rope. Just remember, folks, even when Tim's mic is unplugged, your heart (laughs) still matters. (laughs) You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code.